Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And we have a Jake mystery. You're over there ready to go. The mystery history this week. You know, I week. knew it was going to be a good week when I, I got in here and you're practicing your French accents. Oh, we oui, Did you see that it's 108 degrees in Paris? Right not. now, it is 108 no. degrees. It's really hot, and I hope your episode is as hot as it is in France. Yeah, that was really was that, was, that, was that pretty no, good? That was terrible. Also, we're going to hit my Road America trip, and yes. you bought something, and we're going to talk about that, <laughs> I did. too. Um, before we get that, I want to let everybody know that you, we've been talking about doing a drawing yeah. for the Petrobox. That's going to be Monday. So we're gonna you're going to find out who won on Monday right. and gets a petrol box so you basically have till monday to get your review in for this month's drawing yep so all you have to do is go on either itunes leave us a review or anywhere else that you consume podcasts and then send it to us yeah you gotta we show don't it to check us. all the random boards and platforms out yeah there. so there if you leave many. us a review somewhere else let us know and we'll we'll throw your name in yes. the hat so, so what is petrobox petrobox good question it's a monthly subscription service made for car guys i mean you've seen all of these like cheese of the month club or the wine Ooh, of the I, month club I, or, is there a cheese one? Oh, i'm sure there is i'm googling but that while you talk about this is very cool this is a car guy monthly subscription service petrolbox so each month they put together some of the coolest products and gadgets from around the industry and deliver it right to your doorstep. They select items such as tools, detailing supplies, shirts, other apparel, stickers, all sorts of stuff. A lot of times there's magazines in there and they send it right to your doorstep. So you can subscribe for yourself or like I mentioned before, this is actually a really good gift because a lot of times you can't get <laughs> These cheese boxes are $100 a month. <laughs> you know what? Petrol box is not. It starts at $19.95 per month. Or you can get the Petrol box Premium, which gets you more gear every month for $39.95 per month. Uh, another thing that's really cool is they actually give away a set of rotiform wheels each and every month to one of their subscribers. So it, it's another added kind of cool benefit. Sure. Uh, we've partnered with them to offer a cool discount for your first month's subscription. So check them out at mypetrolbox.com and be sure to use the code OVERCREST at checkout to receive that $6 off your first month's order. All right. So as many of you know, if you were watching my Instagram stories, I went to Road America. Right. And uh, it was... So hot. It was hot. Well, the first day was hot. So I was I had this I didn't know what car I was gonna take till I walked right. outside and opened the garage door. And I was like, mm, every time I don't take my 911, right. I regret it. Okay. Like every time. So I was thinking to myself, if I don't take this, I'm gonna regret it. And it ended up I regretted taking it. <laughs> <laughs> well. Because I it was it was ninety six degrees yeah. in Wisconsin. Yep. During, and I've driven it when it's hot. The hot doesn't necessarily bother me. It's the humidity. Nah, it isn't even that. I don't oh. care. I'll be hot. It's not oh, a big it's deal. Oh, it's the car overheats. It's the car. <laughs> the car got... So there was an accident somewhere on 94. Right. I saw your Instagram story. Yeah, I sat there in traffic for probably an hour not moving. That yeah. was a nightmare. But good news is I had a. I took the five-pound bag ice. Okay. I was smart, and I didn't rip the bag open and dump it in the cooler. Okay. I kept it in the bag, so then I took it out of the cooler and put it on my neck. 
Oh, sure. Which was great. I was fine. Yeah, but there's the your AC. Wasn't. I thought you were going to tell me you put it on like the intake manifold or something mm. to try to cool it down. That would melt instantly. Yeah, it, wouldn't it would. Even... I did see. I thought it was kind of cool. You opened your rear deck lid. I did. So I'm like, okay, I got to find some way. I'm like 240 degrees. Uh, yeah, it was up there. It was up. It was. It was. The temperatures were, and they were just climbing very slowly, but right. climbing as. You know, you kind of get to like a terminal heat where it just keeps building on itself. Right. So I ended up op- pulling over, opening up the deck lid, and driving with the deck lid open. Because you weren't going fast. No, that was the problem. I wasn't. <laughs> I was barely moving. I was going five miles. And walk, could you walking pace? Noticeably see your temperature drop after yes. opening your rear deck lid. I did. Interesting. Yeah, I did notice a distinct difference, and I was doing some research as I was sitting there doing <laughs> nothing. Oh, and I ended up buying an oil cooler and on it the spot. Arrived today. And it arrived I saw. today, and I. Don't so, like it because it's not a factory cooler. It's only got oh. it's only got ten rows, and a factory is fifteen. Now, do you have the weird? They call it the trombone style. No, nope. there's no actual fins. So the trombone style is if you think of the way a trombone is with the brass hoops. Yeah, basically. it's literally just brass piping kind of looped. Yep. So the brass piping goes up into the front, into the fender, and then it just comes back. So it just coils around itself, and it just uses radiant heat to cool off. Right. Just but like, that's not what you have. No, I have the fifteen row brass cooler, okay. which is like the European cooler. But it doesn't have a fan on it or anything like that. So right. it's but it's better than the trombone. But my thought is is that I've got nine point eight to one compression mm-hmm. plus my timing plus it's a seventy two, which means my oil tank sits in front of the wheel, which means oh. my oil tank also doesn't get any air. Interesting. I didn't Your think oil of that. tank is behind the wheel. Yeah, it kind of acts as its own cooler. I suppose. big time. It's a huge heat sink. Huh. Right, huge. Just sitting there, just. <laughs> getting rid radiating of radiating heat. Right, heat. Exactly. So I'm. So That's I. Interesting. I, now whatever I'm happened. Point, did you ever figure out if your thermostat is actually opening? So I have the car has two thermostats. Okay. So on a 72, normally. So I had to. I know it's this all 72 only stuff. So everybody's like, oh, 72. That's really cool. No. Nope. No. It's all just expensive and it's a pain in the ass. So I, you actually have to um, machine out for the thermostat on the oil filter housing. So it'll take a thermostat because you can't have. Uh, 150 PSI or whatever it is running through your oil cooler. You definitely don't want that kind of pressure up there. So you put yes. a thermostat on okay. it because then the oil pressure obviously comes down because you don't want to break your oil cooler. It's just too much pressure. 2050, 2060 weight oil. Right. 1060, whatever it is, is really thick and it's really high pressure. Um, so you don't want that at the cooler. Anyway, so you put the filter or you take the filter housing out, send it away, have it machined so you can put oh. a thermostat in it. So then that controls the oil that goes up to there. But there's also the cooler that's on. You don't have a front oil cooler. No, you. I just have the engine oil cooler. Right. So there's a thermos, the same thermostat yeah. up there, but it's like you could change it in five seconds. But oh, me, yeah. it's up behind all the CIS stuff. So oh, right. I, I sent that oil cooler back already because it wasn't a factory oil cooler. Oh. I didn't want it. Plus, it looked like some <laughs> AN fitting stuff that wouldn't have fit, and it just looked like a nightmare. So When did you turn into a purist? I, did I just not give you the reason why I didn't want it? To, why I didn't want it? Because it's a bunch of AN fittings, and I don't have AN so, fittings on my car. It turns into some sort of cobbled-together adapter no. stuff. No, don't want it. I just want it to just be correct and just Guess have it bolted together. Guess who has AN fittings on their car? Oh, I'm sure you do. I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure you have AN fittings in your house, and I'm sure they're blue and red, just like all those no, terrible... No, I did pay extra for the black AN fittings. They cost extra? Oh, yeah. So you... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it seems like if you go to any like, car shows or any hot rod shows, it's mind-blowing to me that people haven't figured out yet that you can buy black ones. They yep. don't have to be anodized red and blue. PSA, they make black AN fittings. You don't have to run the red and blue ones Fun anymore. Fact, do you know what AN stands for? 
Army Navy. Okay. I didn't know if you knew that. Yeah, it is actually a military spec of right. its own kind, and it's shared by the Army Navy. And they didn't use that in Germany, <laughs> needless to say. True. So it's, so anyway, I just wanted to get something that fits right. So I sent it back, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a partial drop on the motor, which means I'm going to loosen mm. the motor mounts on the transmission, disconnect the transmission from the shift rod, Right. Disconnect whatever else I need. Probably the the fuel lines. I gotta remember how much slack there is on that stuff. But I'm gonna try and drop the engine down about ten inches, so, so can I can get, get my arms back there and I can pull that thermostat out and see what the deal is. Mine, I just have to pop the lid and I can see it right there. I know. Yeah, that's because <laughs> yours has an unreliable unreliable carburetor setup. It's pretty reliable now. It's we'll running see. really well. We'll see. Let's. Why don't you drive it for another sixty thousand miles without touching it? Okay. Just we'll, we are you willing to bet that you could drive that car? No, because right? I'm actually still tinkering with jet sizes <laughs> as we speak. <laughs> I've never touched my fuel system on my car. Never, not once. I haven't done. That's me knocking on wood. <laughs> I haven't touched it. It's, All right. I bought well, now that you jinxed yourself, let's let's get oh, on. Yeah, with sorry. Your story. Okay. So yeah, it was super hot, and then I obviously I made it, and the the, uh, the rain was there. I was camping. I had water in my tent. It was. So super, when did you get in? I don't know. In the afternoon sometime. Thursday? Friday. Friday morning. I decided right. I, I... You left Friday morning, got through. Yeah. So what they do is they have uh, they have all the race cars come from the track. They drive on public roads all the way right. to downtown for Elkhart the little, for the little race car concours. And then they have the uh, the race during the day or whatever. And then the yep. next day, they have the, the, the show car concours, which is kind of interesting. There's two interesting things that happened. Three. Okay. One, there's a Ferrari F40 there, which is... Yeah. Always notable at any time. And this one had been converted to LM spec. Yes. Which was super, <laughs> it was great. I mean, you couldn't get close. The problem with this thing is there's so many people that, oh. from like a photographer's point of view, you can't even begin to think about taking photos, but you can walk right up to the cars. There's no ropes. There's, you just, I saw it on Instagram. Yeah. yeah it's, it's very it's cool. Really, really nice. But there was also a Ferrari 308 GT4 Dino. Okay. Which is not a well loved car. People don't really love this car. You can get them for about forty to fifty thousand hmm. dollars, which for a vintage Ferrari is so cheap. This is on your list of instead of a nine eleven. Why do you say that? Uh, because we used to do that segment. Well, instead of a nine eleven, you could have one of these. Well, yeah, instead of a nine eleven, you could have this. Which so would I'm be looking a, it up. The three hundred eight GT four Dino. Yeah, so this so, is after the really cool classic swoopy lined right. Dinos. So Dino was Enzo Ferrari's son who right. died in fifty six, and he's, they put the, his name on his on the cars to honor him. But there was obviously brand conflict. People didn't know what was going on. So in seventy six, they took the Dino badge off the. The 308 GT4, and then they put a Ferrari badge on it. So oh, so this is the 308, but in no, 75 they no, called it a Dino. No, it's the G 308 GT4. It doesn't look like well, they it's all kind of look. It, it looks yeah. more like a Uraco than it does a, a 308. Like okay. as of the 308 that you're thinking of of the I know 80, what you mean of yeah. the 80s. Yep. So this was a uh, the first mid-engine V8 Ferrari ever, and it had a 240 horsepower, three liter, dual overhead cam V8, which you know, you go, wow, 240 horsepower isn't that much. But then I realized, well, that's 50 more horsepower than a Porsche had at the time. Or right. So, or 100 more horsepower than your car would have had or more. Yes. So there's, <laughs> so that, that actually was pretty good. But the neat thing is that they made a 208 GT4. So a 2-liter V8. That thing must rev. It's the smallest production V8 ever sold. Two-liter V8. Look at, I mean, little bottle caps for pistons, just little tiny little guys. Wow, yeah. Just, um, the other thing that they had at the Concorde, there was two... 911 RSs. Oh, wow. Two, 273 RSs. One. One we know of. One, one we know of. It's a white one with green script and green yep. wheels. 
and the car is not correct. However, I mean, there's all kinds of weird things done to the car. However, okay. the thing is, is that that car, all the stuff that was interesting that's done to it, I think it has like an SC airbox and some other weird oh, okay. things going I didn't know on. That. Uh, or uh, I'm, I'm not sure if that's correct, so don't quote me on that. I don't remember all the things that are different on that car. But here's the deal: it was all done by the factory. So the factory, Porsche restored the car. Oh, but they restored it not to original spec. No, because they're like, oh, let's fix this up. Let's make it more modern. Let's 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 make this a better car for so whoever's it's not driving like it. Some dude in his garage just did it incorrectly. No, the the factory did it. Wow. And they took the case out and they they made a new case. They put a new engine case in it, and uh, they did a different transmission case and stuff. Interesting. Like that. But so it's, it's kind like, of like how does that affect? It it value, almost is kind provenance. of it's kind of neat in a way that sure. Porsche did it, but they chose to do it this way to see what they thought could be improved upon or whatever. But the other car was a yellow RS, and okay. this car, so it was for me the best car at the show in terms of Porsche. I mean, it was now is this a standard standard? I'm putting in quotes because it's really rare as it is RS or the RS lightweight. So the RS lightweight is kind of a misnomer. Um, that you have like f the first. RSs, the second RSs, and the third RSs. Okay. The first ones had some lighter weight body panels and stuff like that. Right, but they there don't was, have the S trim. It's the all fiberglass. Seventy three lightweight was never something that Porsche sold as a lightweight. I they just, just looking in hindsight, they happen to have some sure. thinner body panels and stuff like I gotcha. that. And I don't, I don't think it's even that much weight. I don't think it's. Well, they don't have the big metal overriders in the rear bumper, and they right. look slightly different. Yeah, but regardless. But, so yeah, so it wasn't actually ever a model, but they are known as the first generations were known as lightweight. Anyway, I don't know which one this car was, but it was perfect. <laughs> the the car, every, the tires were right, the wheels were right. It had sevens on the back, sixes on front, mm -hmm. which typically doesn't look super good, but with the tires that were on there, it looked really awesome, and every body panel was perfect everything about this car was perfect and the white one won best of show hmm. and i struggle with it because i really like that white car yeah but i think the yellow car was probably <laughs> was probably better i think it was like 11 or 12 year restoration or something like wow. that. wow just like this huge monumental thing anyway um that's about it oh i did talk to brian redman yeah the namesake of the weekend yeah so i ended up chasing him down well first he was he was signing books so he's got a book and we're gonna so i interviewed him but in order to get the interview uh -huh. i'm gonna save that for our patreons oh okay so, for, so that'll be a patreon exclusive it's interview. gonna be a patreon exclusive interview it's not super long but it's super good it was okay. uh so i walked up and i said hey mr redman i'm chris i'm i'm a journalist and this other guy and i won't even say who they're from because it's embarrassing for them he just goes <laughs> a journalist huh and i was furious that he basically demeaned me for no reason in front of brian redman as i was reaching out to shake his hand about saying to trying to get an okay. interview guy was a total jerk it would just, Did he know you? He doesn't know me. Oh, okay. but he just like oh another journalist, <laughs> and he was he was from a publishing company that sells books about cars. That's mm. all I'm going to say because it's not I don't want to okay. start any drama. But it, anyway, so I completely ignored that, which oh man, it made me so furious. It threw me off track. <laughs> yeah, quite a bit. Sure. So I went to shake his hand, and he fist bumped me. <laughs> okay. And I and he went I I can't shake anymore. And he's got his really smooth British accent. It's really really good. Okay. He's like I can't shake any more hands. And he shows me this scar on his forearm that goes from his wrist to his elbow. He's like, yeah, my hands getting a little sore from shaking hands. I broke it in a BRM in 1968. 
And wow. he's got this big scar on his forearm. I'm like, oh, well, that's a good reason to fist bump. Yeah, you know? no kidding. <laughs> I like that, too, that he still does something. Yeah, so I uh, I went, I was like, hey, can I have a little bit of your time? I'd love to interview you and talk to you. I, you know, I've got this podcast. We've got, you know, a couple hundred thousand downloads. It, people would love, love, love to yeah. hear from you. Our listeners would love that. He's like, absolutely. I'm like, great. I'm like, when can we do it? He's like, well, I got this other thing over at the Can-Am tent and we'll do it after that. I said, great. So I went over to the Can-Am tent at the time that he said he would be there. There's nobody there because there's a storm rolling in. Oh, right. Like just crazy. All of a sudden the wind starts blowing and you would think that Brian Redmond's racing days are over, but you didn't see him drive that golf cart. he hopped on that golf cart and he was gone baby gone so here i am like hiking it through the rain to find out where he went on his golf cart i'm like "Ah, he probably went back to the building he was signing books and sure enough he did and i went up and i interviewed him and talked to him and there's a lot of people in line sure waiting for his autograph i just walked by all of them and i was like i'm here let's how much time do you have for this he says as much time as you want oh wow but with all those people waiting i think i took about you know 10 12 minutes of his time right but what was cool was as i'm interviewing him he's Easily one of the best storytellers I've ever. Just very fluid with his stories. Very wonderful. Some people voice. have just a talent he's, for that. He's very, very good. Very good storyteller. And as he's telling these stories, the line kind of disintegrates of people. And it, all of a sudden it comes forward. And there's this U-shape of people with their eyes like oh, dinner plates. listening to as him. As they're just digesting the story yeah, from him. Sure. Just listening wide-eyed. It was quiet. It was just me asking. Like I think I asked him four questions or whatever. Four or five questions. And everybody was just enraptured with the stories wow. that he was telling. So I can't wait to hear that. Yeah, he's got a book out. It's, you can look up Brian Redmond book and you can go get his book if you want. It's really, really good. And what I'm going to do on the Patreon is there's some samples of the book out there. I'm going to read some of the great stories for the book and we're going to play his interview for the Patreon guys. And that's going to be our Patreon exclusive for this month. Awesome. So it was, I just, I'm like, I really want to talk to this guy more. I want to just, yeah, I, I want to kidnap him and. <laughs> <laughs> Just tell me all your stories, uh, Mr. Redmond. Sure. So okay. I hope I can maybe next year, and uh, I think he'll be still be around. He seemed he seemed spry, so I think next year I'll uh, I'll try and see if I can get him for a little bit more time. Sure. And one of the questions I ask him is relevant to next week's episode, our main episode, where I interviewed Bob Gerritsen. Sure. Who was another, another old famous racing famous racer driver, team owner, and uh, he t- he tells a story about how he crashed and how Brian Redmond was the only one to stop. And oh, wow. it was kind of interesting. Brian Redmond's been talked to a million times. And I kind of asked him a few questions. And then I asked him that question. Right. And he kind of looked at me like, oh, a new question. Something <laughs> something I haven't been asked before. Something sure. from someone that actually knows and they and they care. Yeah, and you could see like the a twinkle in his eye come mm. on as he started telling more stories. And and it's really, really good. I think you guys will I think you guys will enjoy it. So patreon.com slash overcrest. Five awesome. bucks a month. You can get that and much other exclusive stuff. Um, but let's talk about, before we get to your mystery history, why don't yes. you tell us a little bit about Renline? Yes. So uh, Renline, as you guys know, have partnered with us and are offering us a great discount to our listeners. And actually, now through the end of the month, they're doing a 10% off sale for all of their manufactured goods. And as with everything they manufacture, it's all extremely high quality and beautifully machined. I just installed a bespoke uh, fire extinguisher mount in my car. and I, it is, What do you mean by bespoke? It is made for that model. So, so every bracket is different. If you have an early 911, if you have a G body, I'm not sure a, I would qualify that as bespoke. Okay, well, it didn't have my name. <laughs> I, that word in has it. a pet. I'm, I have a pet peeve problem with that word. <laughs> Anyways, it was beautifully machined. It was high quality, as with everything they do. They've been in business for the past 20 years and have developed over 6,000 products. 
that are just like that. Um, what really sets them apart, though, as I've mentioned, they're not just another distributor. Their products are all designed and engineered right there in-house in Vermont. So do yourself a favor. Head over to RenLine.com. You can use the code OVERCREST to get 5% off your next order, along with free shipping on orders over $250. Or you can get that 10% off as well using the code FLASH10. FLASH10. Thank you very much. Um, so I'm actually going to be installing those hood struts. So if you follow me on Instagram, at Chris Cluel, you'll be able to watch me install the hood struts that hopefully don't suck because every hood strut <laughs> ever made for a 911 does not work new old right otherwise. they just for whatever reason so do you think that fail. back in the day at the at the <laughs> i'm imagining at the dealership they're like oh can i see under the under the hood and the guy opens up the hood and he's just standing just there holding, holding it, it. <laughs> as he's trying to like sell the car and he the, the customer like walks around to the other side and the guy can't move because he's holding right. the stupid hood up and doesn't want the customer to know that it's just garbage <laughs> Uh, so hopefully those things work out. I'd be, I'd, I think if those well, work, they're mechanical. So I think it's a really cool. It is a really really, cool, really design. cool design. In my opinion, it's the coolest thing that Runline sells if it works. So we're gonna install those. Uh, <laughs> we're gonna install those this week probably. Awesome. So do we want to get right to our Let's mystery history? I'm in. Let's do it. The mystery history. I'm ready to be bamboozled. Pierre Michaud was born on June 25th, 1813 in the French town of Bar-le-Doux. He was raised and trained as a blacksmith's apprentice until he finally moved to the bustling capital of Paris. So it's funny that so many of these guys that you mentioned in your story, the common thread is blacksmith. There's Has always that like, come up before? It's come up before. Like blacksmith seems, imagine, I mean. That's like an engineer of back in the day, exactly. right? Exactly. That's what I was just going to say. If you think of 1813, you needed something made out of metal. The only guy that's going to do it is the blacksmith. He's making your fence. He's making the doors. He's making your door hinges. He's making the the shoes for your horses. He's making the stirrups. He's making guns. I mean, everything yeah. goes through the world of a blacksmith. I wonder if they were fairly wealthy at the time, like a um, blacksmith. I well, I can tell you, Pierre, there was no shortage of work for him. Yeah, in no kidding. The capital city of Paris. Uh, Pierre found a niche for himself, actually, creating parts and fittings to supply the carriage industry. Now, take a moment and imagine the city streets of Paris during the middle of the 19th century, 1850s. Men who seemed to always be overdressed, walking around busy, you know, stone streets, and they had their cane in hand for some reason. Probably stepping in horse poop. <laughs> right, because there's horses everywhere, and their carts, and the shopkeepers, and of course, the many carriages transporting people and goods all around. And that's where there was such a niche industry to maintain and build these carriages. What you might not be picturing, though, are the men skidding along on draisiniers. A what? Draisiniers. Okay. I'm so, just trying to imagine what a draisiniers might be. I, for some reason, it popped into my head. Marty McFly on a skateboard. But that's like... <laughs> you are actually not very far off. Okay, so a draisinier, sometimes called a dandy horse, okay. is basically a two-wheeled buckboard that riders would push along with their legs. So think of it like those balance bikes you have for your kids and your yeah. toddlers, right? Yeah. You know, where it's like... the bicycle but that wasn't a thing yet yeah so these are just almost like scooters but you straddle it things always come full circle don't they yeah no kidding so they were actually invented by a german guy by the name of carl dries which is why they're dries and ice dries and ice dries and ice and were originally called laufmaschine which is german for running machine 
because that's what you did. Well, it wasn't long before our intrepid blacksmith Pierre started to tinker with one of these Dresniers. Using his expertise in the carriage trade, he set to work Do you think that anybody, modifying. Hold on. Do you think that any people in Europe have anything that we discover? It goes, Haha, the way something's called. You know, like, is there anything that we have designed or invented that people... Oh, I'm sure. They don't go, oh, space shuttle. They don't, I mean, it's... <laughs> the Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's Le Big Mac. Or Le Big Mac. What do they call a quarter pounder with cheese? Royale yeah, with cheese, man! That's right. So I don't think we have anything <laughs> cool. I think we're too brutish for... Uh, yeah, there's something to be said about that. So he went to work tinkering with one of these Drenieses. And using his expertise in the carriage trade, he came up with cranks fitted to the front wheel which allowed a rider to pedal rather than simply push along the ground with their feet and just like that pierre michel invented the bicycle now pierre and his son ernest along with their business partner uh pierre lament who another pierre continued to test and refine this prototype invention and it wasn't before long they realized they were really onto something so with the help of so-called Oliver Brothers, Ami and Rene, they managed to secure the funds for their new company, Michao Etsy, which simply means Michao and Company. So I, I tried to take into who these Oliver Brothers were. I think they were basically just wealthy, like, venture capitalists of right. the 1800s. Right. So regardless, soon Michao Etsy had a factory in place. And by 1868, they became the manufacturer, first manufacturer, to mass produce a bicycle. And what did this bicycle look like? What are we talking here? So it was basically the same as one of these dandy horses, where it's, think of it the way I would describe it, it's almost a sawhorse, but instead of the two boards on the end, it had two wheels. Right. And so you're straddling this horse, not horse, but a board, <laughs> right? right? And on the front, there's just cranks directly hooked up to the wheel. So it's so basically like my no... kid's tricycle without exactly. being a tricycle. Exactly. Got it. Exactly. So later... Hold on. How later? <laughs> are much, we, are we... <laughs> much later. What if we... <laughs> All right. So, uh, yeah, the initial models consisted of a simple wooden frame and the seemingly revolutionary pedals and cranks affixed to that front wheel. Now, later, Michaud developed a, quote, more refined cast iron frame. And I say that with some irony as I found that these later bikes were commonly referred to as bone shakers. And Ooh, I like that. You can start to see why. Because they had a stiff wrought iron frame, wooden spoked wheels surrounded by iron bands that were basically in lieu of tires that didn't exist at that time, and zero thought to any ergonomics. You can kind of imagine what it was like riding one of these contraptions in the bumpy cobblestone streets of Paris. It would have been awful. Yeah. So besides the terrible ride, the other main shortcoming of Pierre's design was the lack of speed. This was, after all, simply pedals mounted to a small front wheel. It's as direct drive as the concept gets. Right. What's the gear ratio for that? That is probably <laughs> close to one-to-one -one right there, baby. <laughs> so in the coming years, other manufacturers popped up looking to prove upon this concept. And to gain more speed, designers with larger and larger diameter front wheels appeared. So, in order to keep the design relatively compact, though, the rear wheel subsequently became smaller. Those bicycles are so dang ridiculous when you see them. <laughs> yes. So, <laughs> this helped riding comfort because now you're riding on a bigger wheel. 
ergonomics because yeah. you can actually sit up and speed with the effective ratio of the large drive wheel compared to your pedal surface. <laughs> and the distance to the ground as you fall over yes. into a giant puddle of mud. The other thing is there's no way to stop them. There's no brakes on these oh, things. Oh, that's true. It's, you, you would just, just pedal. No, you, you stick your foot on the... <laughs> no, that's what... Uh, my bikes didn't on have fixies. brakes. Yeah. You just stick your foot the in the tire. The problem is, when you do that then, because you're sitting on top of the front wheel, you just go over the handlebars and go forward. You're done. In fact, they made different versions of these where the handlebars did some weird thing where they wrapped behind you and you held on like outside yeah. so that if you had to stop, you could jump off the front and not go over the handlebars. Okay. <laughs> it was really weird. So I was skeptical of how fast these things actually were, but it turns out once you had like someone push you and get underway to overcome basically how much gear reduction there was. Well, I say gear reduction. There's it's just, no a, gear. just a lot of centrifugal it's just, force. It's yeah, a lot it's of the, mass to get going. It's the mechanical advantage, basically. Yeah. Many of these cyclists of the day would be seen racing horses. So they would get booking on these things. Falling off must have been amazing. <laughs> I'm, there's got to be some old, old like, you know, the film where it's like a silent film and they add the music later. Yeah, exactly. Of some dude just like eating it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. So these high wheeled bikes became known as penny farthings. The name came from British coins. The penny and the farthing, one much larger than the other. So the wheels resembled a penny in oh, okay. front of a farthing. And these penny farthings had quite their time in the limelight. A penny farthing was actually the first bicycle to circumnavigate the globe by rider and adventurer Thomas Stevens from April 1884 to December 1886. I wonder so, how much he, time he spent pushing that thing. Because there's no <laughs> roads. How do you do it? I know. So it took him two and a half years, over two and a half years. But that's still pretty impressive. Jesus. We should get him on the podcast. Uh, he died a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> and as a side note, I really want to someday be known as an adventurer. Anyways, back to our Frenchman, Pierre Michel. While penny farthings became the toys of the rich, a sort of status symbol of conspicuous consumption. Was there a proper attire for riding oh, your penny I'm farthing? Oh, I'm sure there you was, You had to have your sir. special ball Well, you wouldn't be seen out cap? riding your penny farthing without a hat on. No, you had to certainly have not. Uh, and it really was kind of that these were like status symbols for the rich. Were they but expensive? I, I think they were. And I mean, they weren't practical is the problem. Yeah. So why would toys. you have one? Yeah, yeah exactly. A horse is much better. Yes. Turns out. So that's the solution for everything that we've been looking for with all these electric cars, these <laughs> autonomous cars, everything. We should just all go back to horses. Just give everybody a horse. I don't see the problem with it. I think there'd be a lot of poop, Chris. I'm sure we could come up with some sort of little Roomba that would drive around the streets <laughs> and pick up all the a poop. A poop Roomba. I need that for my cats. A poop, a poop Yeah. All right. So Pierre Michel wasn't done furthering his own design. And so they kept at it. And it was actually his son, Ernest, who made the next great leap forward. Keep in mind that this was in the heart of the Industrial Revolution. And what was the motive that powered the entire world at the time? Steam. I was going to say money. Well, <laughs> arguably. Okay. Now, I always thought of steam engines in terms of like giant locomotives and trains. But you need to keep in mind that steam engines were used for just about everything in all sorts of various industries, right? You'd run textile mills off steam engines. And so, of course, they were developed in all different sizes. So, Ernest... Ernest what? <coughs> Ernest <laughs> procured a small industrial steam engine. I wonder if that name involved any pressure throughout your life. Hey, can you get something for me? 
Ernest. No, no. That, that too. <laughs> I was thinking Procured. His name's Procured Ernest. I thought procured. you were making a pun here about steam engines and being an Ernest. All of it. There's All of so it. many Ernest puns procured. going on. Yes, okay. So Ernest procured a small industrial steam engine, which works off pressure, uh, and attached it to one of his father's bone shaker bicycle designs, which I it, it doesn't say this anywhere, but I can only hope he called it the steaming bone shaker. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless, with that, the son of the inventor of the bicycle was now the inventor of the motorcycle. I love it. Ernest's design using an alcohol-fired boiler powering a single piston connected via twin belt drives to the front wheel. I can only imagine what this thing was like to ride. And for how that much matter, water did it hold? What onlookers thought, you know? You have a water tank. What are we, what are you we have doing? to have. So I saw a picture of it, and it's like, it looks like, I don't know, 12 inches by eight yeah, cylinder. Like three gallons or something. Yeah, probably. Yeah, so it had to be hot, heavy, noisy, and dangerous. Right. And that Just point of blow being, your nuts right well, off. <laughs> yeah, that point of being dangerous doesn't go without precedent, unfortunately. So only a year after Ernest Michaud strapped that steam engine to a bicycle, in 1868, the American inventor Sylvester H. Roper presented his twin-cylinder steam drive bike, which I think it's funny how everyone has to one-up each other in this oh, for progression sure. of anything. So Roper's version used a coal-burning furnace, which was larger, heavier, and more powerful. Sorry, honey, I'm going to be late. I got to get this coal warmed up. I'll be there. As she's <laughs> rotating the phone, winding the phone up. Yes, excuse me, operator. Were there phones in 1860? I don't know. I, I'm imagining there probably okay. was. Anyways. No, you wanted it cold fire because that made more heat. And in a steam engine, more heat equals more power. It doesn't matter if you're late for your date how much heat you've got. <laughs> So the machine was said to have killed Roper while performing a demonstration only a few years later. Doesn't matter if you're late for your date, if you're dead. <laughs> yeah, that's probably more important. Now, I couldn't find anything about what actually happened, but I can only imagine something like a boiler explosion. Yeah, I'm sure. It's probably awful. Yes. Because what people don't always realize is how much pressure there is yeah, in a boiler. Yeah, that's the it whole is, point. <laughs> yeah. No, but it's... The amount of, what are we talking about PSI? It's got to be 3,000. I, no I mean, it's yeah. serious business. Yeah, think about a steam locomotive, how much torque those things have to have to pull a train. You know that the other day I was at my house and I heard this, <laughs> just like this super, and we have a train. Tra I'm like, what is that super lame train horn? I wish I would have known because it was some super old steam locomotive. Oh, seriously? Like driving from Duluth to Minneapolis. Oh, like cool. Oh, man. It looked like the Orient Express when I looked up a picture yeah. of it. I'm super bummed I didn't get to go see it. <laughs> but steam power is really cool. Yeah, it is. So over the next decade or so, dozens of different designs for self-propelled bicycles appeared, all using some variation of steam power. However... Everything changed in 1876. A red letter year, Chris. Do you know why? You no. don't? That's the year German engineer Nikolaus Auto debuted his invention, aptly named the Auto Cycle Engine. The Auto Cycle Engine was revolutionary as it was the first to use four stroke compressed charge gasoline powered internal combustion. 
This is basically the invention of the internal combustion engine as we know it. And nearly as soon as the design was released, a couple of Otto's employees used it to power a motorcycle. It's the, it's the easiest thing to power. Exactly. Like just, even today, if anybody messes around with like electric whatever, they want to do something... You throw it on a bike. Throw it on a bike. It's the <laughs> easiest way to do it. People are still doing it today. Yeah. So these guys that took this auto engine, their, their names might actually ring a bell to you, Chris. So Gottlieb Daimler and his partner Wilhelm Maybach developed the petroleum Reitwagen in 1885. Now, oddly, Daimler's Reitwagen did not have a maneuverable front wheel. Instead, relied on a pair of outrigger wheels, which are basically big training wheels. And then you leaned into the turns while the bike stayed upright. <laughs> Weird-looking thing. Then in 1894, the German company Hildebrand and Wolfmüller became the first to establish a production line factory to manufacture internal combustion-powered vehicles, which were now, for the first time ever, called motorrads, or motorcycles. The Hildebrand and Wolfmüller motorrad was a very interesting design. So it used a 1.5-liter liquid-cooled two-cylinder four-stroke engine that produced, any guesses on how much horsepower? Seven. 2.5. <laughs> uh, here's what's even more interesting. At what RPM do you think those 2.5 horsepower were developed? 75 RPM. Well, it's 240, which I thought was still very, very low. Yeah. I was trying to think of the, you sent me a sound clip and I was trying to hear the, <laughs> I was trying to hear, estimate what the RPM was. Yeah. So while I tell you more, you can go ahead and play this. All These right. things still exist and people ride them. Uh, it touted a maximum speed of, any guesses? Maximum speed? Uh, well, I'm looking at this thing right now. I'm going to guess 16 miles per hour. 28. Really? Yeah, she's flying. That's pretty good. The fuel-air mixture was provided by a, quote, surface carburetor, which was the earliest type of carburetor where air is combined with fuel simply by passing over the surface of gasoline. So it's literally just a float bowl and a straw blowing over it. Right. That's, <laughs> it works. Yeah. So the engine was positioned flat in the frame and used hot tube ignition now this was basically like a glow plug that i was had just gonna ask how is the ignition working yeah it's not electric it's basically a glow plug but it had a lantern style burner on the end of it heating a metal tube red hot that extended into the cylinder head also the rear fender was hollow and functioned as the water tank for cylinder cooling which i imagine like the oil system was a total loss design where it's not circulated, it's just kind of routed and dumped on the necessary components. Right. Have you ever heard of a total loss oiling system? No, I have not. Okay. Early motorcycles all use this, where they had an oil tank up higher than the engine, and just routed hoses in very gravity. It would just drip on the necessary components. So there wasn't ever like a recirculating nope. tank or pump or anything. No, you, you just, just had to fill it, it up. up. Okay. Yep, just topped it up. Um, the the uh, connecting rods. Kind of like some people's cars these days. <laughs> 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 like my lawnmower. <laughs> you know what's great is I always thought, you know, if you have a car that leaks the right amount of oil, you never have to do an oil change. You never have to change oh, the oil. You just, you just fill it up. up. It's a yeah. total loss. Oh, I'm sure that's great, right? A total loss Civic is perfect. <laughs> <laughs> it's a technology. The connecting rods of the engine were not connected to a crankshaft. No, instead, they were connected directly to the rear wheel. There was no flywheel apart from the movement of the rear wheel. So the return impulse for the pistons. Okay, combustion stroke, piston yep. comes down. What's bringing it back? Well, the movement of the bike. The inertia. But there was also 
heavy rubber bands, literally connected to the pistons to bring them back up. The intake valves were operated by the suction caused by the intakes. That's basically a one-way valve. While the exhaust valves were operated by an eccentric brass ring on the rear wheel and a device at the cylinder head that opened each cylinder's valves. So not only is the rear wheel your crankshaft, it was also your camshaft and your flywheel. So you could change the... Uh you could change the bore and the stroke by the size of the wheel. <laughs> yeah, I suppose you could, couldn't you? <laughs> or I guess it would just be the stroke. So this model was an entirely, quote, run and jump design with neither clutch nor pedals. So Throttle? No. <laughs> I think there was a throttle, actually. But so 2,000 of these motorcycles were built. Brakes? Uh, maybe, hopefully. Is it just fall over? Fall over machine? <laughs> fall over brakes? Yeah. Uh, there had to have been some sort of no, I'm sure there's some drum break. But I love how there's no. So you basically have to get out, light your little glow plug thing, lanterns. Wait for it. Probably open the valve for your water and your oil on the system, and then run on it because there's no pedals. And as soon as it fires up, hop on it. So I'm I'm imagining the hold my beer moments when this thing came out (laughs) back in the day. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, hold my cognac was probably more along the lines of what it was. So two thousand of these were actually built. And in 2010, a complete example was unearthed in a barn, literally a barn find of one of these, and auctioned off to over 130,000. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So, as you could hear, I mean, these things just go. So, beyond that, over the next 20 years, the technologies and designs for motorcycles grew in leaps and bounds. So did the number of motorcycle manufacturers popping up around so the globe. Pat- patents on this stuff? I mean, these guys have to be putting patents down. I think there was one patent I read of, and I think it was either licensed or it expired or whatever the case was. Sure. Uh, so it's a free-for-all. It was basically a free-for-all. So 1901 alone, that year, saw the formation of English Royal Enfield, Triumph, and then American Harley-Davidson and Indian Motorcycle Manufacturing Company were all in the next two years. So okay. they're popping up all over the place. And with more motorcycles on the road, it's only a matter of time before people started racing them. Yes, now we're getting into it. Early motorcycle races were held on horse racing ovals and bicycle velodromes. By 1909, dedicated wooden tracks... Question. Go. On the bicycle velodromes, did they race those big penny-farthing bikes? I hope so, (laughs) right? Can you imagine? (laughs) (laughs) Now we have to look for penny-farthing races. Yes. (laughs) So, no, but 1909, they had dedicated wooden tracks built specifically for motorcycles, and they began to appear in Los Angeles, for example. It was in 1911 that a man by the name of Ashley Franklin Van Order moved from Illinois to Southern California simply so he could ride his motorcycle year-round. So Van Order took a job selling Harvey, Harley-Davidson's. That's, I'm sorry. You found a penny-farthing race, I didn't you? <laughs> yes, you found a penny-farthing race. Oh, my God. Look, guys, you got to look up <laughs> penny-farthing bike race. And it's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> I'll, put, I'll put it in the show notes so you oh, guys good. can check it out. Oh, this good. is amazing. No, what's actually cooler than a penny farthing bike race are these races. So this guy, Van Order... From what t- I just saw, that's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> this guy took a, a job selling Harleys and began riding competitively, but his racing career was cut short soon afterward by accident, followed by an ultimatum. Quote, his wife, Lily, told him that if he ever rode again, she is out of there. Says Van Olden's grandson. 
Wanting to keep his family intact, Van Order stayed off his bike, but not away from racing. Instead, he turned to photography, and the images he amassed from the mid-1910s through the 1920s constitute the most complete and compelling visual record of early motorcycle racing. I only mention him because I wanted to share a couple of his shots in the show notes, sure. and they're, they're amazing. I'm not a photographer, but you as one, keep in mind, these were all shot at super slow shutter speeds of the day yep, yep. on glass plate film. Yep. It's so just, one thing it's that's nuts. really neat is that um, regardless of technological advancement on anything, even if you're not educated in something, good work it, translates it, and transcends good point. everything. And yeah. that goes for good work, good design, good photography, good furniture, everything that's designed well. It doesn't matter if you're educated in it or not. You get you can it. notice. You get it. For sure. And these early motorcycle races were spectacular. Keep in mind... This is at a time when people thought of horsepower in terms of actual horses. So the tracks, called motordromes, came in various sizes, the largest being a mile and a quarter long circuit in what is now Beverly Hills. Uh, they were constructed of lengths of wooden two-by-fours with rough-cut surfaces. This, of course, is where the term board tracker comes from, which is a style of motorcycle. Sure. The turns were severely banked, allowing these early race bikes to reach speeds well over 100 miles an hour. I didn't include it here, but I should describe what these bikes they're racing are. If you're not familiar with board trackers, they're basically like giant bicycle frames with huge V-twin engines. They had exposed valve train, big belts running directly to the rear wheel. So basically, awesome. They said they needed a separate motorcycle to basically pull start them because they were geared so high. Um, crashes, as you can imagine, were frequent and often fatal. One particularly lethal day in 1912, six spectators and two racers were killed when a racer lost control of his bike and slammed up into the crowd because the crowd is looking down at these banked corners. Right. Newspapers soon began referring to the motordromes as murderdromes, and local governments closed many tracks. Sounds like some sort of B-movie. Murderdrome! <laughs> Yet... People still flock to these races at board tracks all over the country, from Denver to Milwaukee to Long Island to Wait, Los Angeles. Wait, you mean Angeles. that they didn't just immediately, immediately outlaw it and say that nobody could do it? And yeah, they didn't can you imagine the they day? They didn't when... have everybody just complain and just completely stop doing it whatsoever? <laughs> Are you, you mean, referring something specifically? Do you, do you mean that they just continued to uh, take risks and enjoy their lives and yes. go about their daily lives? And, and That's amazing. Until April 6, 1917, where America's focus was directed elsewhere. Yes, it was. The U.S. joined its allies, Britain, France, and Russia, to fight in World War I. With over 2 million U.S. soldiers being sent to the battlefields of France, American manufacturers stepped up the war effort here back home. Soon, messengers on motorcycles became a more familiar sight than those on horseback in the battlefield. Harley-Davidson was the largest supplier of World War I motorcycles, with over 20,000 of its Model 17 being dispatched to France. So these bikes came outfitted with a variety of accessories, including hospital stretchers, passenger sidecars. They put guns on the things, didn't they? Bulletproof shields and fully automatic <laughs> machine guns. Yeah, and these are like old-school Belt fed, water cooled, yeah, like, yeah, yes. serious business. Can you imagine just riding, like, come on, Bob, get, let's go, get on the gas, and you're just like, oh man, I oh know. my god, they were intense. They were said to be quick, agile, durable, and able to navigate dangerous terrain with relative ease. After the war, 
This reputation of Harley-Davidson's bikes preceded it. And with the increased capacity of wartime production, the company was positioned to become, as it was, the largest manufacturer of motorcycles in the world at that time. Fast forward to the Second World War, and then it's no surprise that the primary supplier of motorcycles for U.S. troops was none other than Harley-Davidson. However, unlike World War I, motorcycles were never designed to see direct combat during World War II. Instead, their use was to be limited to policing, scouting, and courier duties. But... Well, they had the Willys Jeep. Exactly. We know about that. But because military convoys were typically led by motorcycle-mounted escorts and scouts, they were usually the first thing enemy forces saw of the U.S. forces. Are these Harley-Davidson motorcycles? The most famous was General George Patton's 2nd Armored Hell on Wheels Division that liberated much of occupied Europe. Harley-Davidson's WLA model soon became known as the Liberator. That's a great name. It is a great oh, name. Oh, man. Especially knowing it, the Hell on Wheels. Hell on the, Wheels. The Patton's own division. So Harley-Davidson manufactured more than 88,000 motorcycles for military use between 1941 and 1945, earning a, uh, two of the Army-Navy awards for production excellence. So many of these bikes were sent over to the war effort that production of civilian vehicles was altogether suspended in 1942 to meet the military's massive demand. Each Harley dealer back in the States received one single new bike that year, and aluminum became so scarce that dealers were told to send in old broken pistons to be melted down and recast into replacements to be sent over to Europe. I can't imagine anybody make, any company making these types of sacrifices. Can these you days. imagine that? No. no. So all the experience gained in wartime production meant that Harley was once again well positioned to deal with the massive demand once GIs came back home after the war. Well, yeah, they all saw the bikes driving around the war and they wanted one. Exactly. As thousands of soldiers returned home, they wanted a bike just like they had either ridden or so fondly remembered seeing in service. And so with so many post-war Harley-Davidson sold, it's no surprise that when you see a Harley, the first thing that you think of is patriotism. Freedom. The freedom bike. <laughs> but that's not really what you think of when you see Harley, is it? It is not. It's, it's Rather actually than the opposite. That almost. iconic symbol of American freedom, Harleys and a lot of motorcycles in general still to this day suffer from a sort of outlaw perception. When you mention a Harley Davidson to an average person, they're probably less likely to think of GIs defending freedom in Europe than they are of gangs of Hell's Angels wreaking havoc somewhere. Right. right. The stigma was in especially in the seventies. Yes. It was real. So with most cultural phenomenons, it's virtually impossible to pinpoint a moment when public opinion shifts or gets formed. However, when it comes to what defines the perception of bikers, not only is there an exact moment we can identify. There's an exact photo. Okay. On the evening of Thursday, July 3rd, 1947, motorcyclists began arriving in Hollister, California for their annual Gypsy Tour, a three-day carnival of races and field events planned to celebrate the 4th of July weekend. Officials prepared for the 1,500 registered riders that were going to attend the event. However, by Friday evening, Estimates put the total number of bikers at over 4,000. This in a sleepy town with a population of only 4,500 itself. 
So this town in California literally doubled in size with bikers. By Saturday night, the celebrating began spilling over into the town's streets. The local hospital was jammed with injured bikers, and the police arrested so many people for varying offenses that a special session of night court was convened to deal with them. And how you don't have enough jail cells right. for all these guys, I imagine. In addition, 30 California Highway Patrol officers armed with tear gas guns were called in as reinforcements to supplement this overmatched Hollister police force. Two blocks of the main so street. So my question is, when I think of Hollister, I think of the stupid store at the I mall. I do too, right. <laughs> totally different. Totally different. So two blocks of their main street, San Benito Avenue, were cordoned off and barricaded by the motorcyclists. They're like, screw you, cops and highway patrol. This is our party area. At one point during that, a band was summoned to play for them, and they danced amid discard beer bottles right there in the street in front of all the cops. (laughs) Now, to put this into context. What was the band? I don't know, know, right? You want to know what the band was? I want to know what the band was. (laughs) But put this into context. Remember that many of these guys who converged on Hollister that weekend arrived with the horrors of world war still fresh in their memories so to someone who had stormed the beaches at normandy or huddled in a foxhole somewhere in the pacific riding a motorcycle through the doors of a restaurant really wasn't that big of a deal yeah however to the local residents and local press they thought it was a big deal they were upset the event was publicized in national newspapers around the country but besides the accounts of that weekend it was a single photograph that forced public opinion. The photo I'm, look, I'm looking at it right now. The photo shows an apparently drunk biker on a Harley, beer bottle in each hand, and many more on the ground beneath his bike. It appeared in the July 1947 issue of Life magazine over the headline Cyclists Holiday and the subhead He and His Friends Terrorize a Town. Life's national distribution made sure that all of America got a good, long look at the drunk on the Harley. Do you think that that was kind of a a conspiracy a little bit at all? So I didn't want to go into all of this, but was the FBI involved? No. Okay, because it seems like something Hoover would be involved in. No, what it was is yes, it was chaos in that town, but that particular photo was staged by that biker gang. Okay, the guy was a local resident who was drunk coming out of the bar. They basically told him, "Hey, get on this buddy's bike." And they pushed all the beer bottles together underneath them. Okay. And a photographer took the photo. That's great. <laughs> so well, that's that's how propaganda works, man. You know. I know. You, and you think a photo has, says it has a thousand words, right? It really does. But it actually has five because you weren't there. It's it's a it's it's interesting how how a photo can tell a story that is totally untrue. True. Good point. And with that single click of a shutter, motorcycling's worth nightmare became reality to many. Motorcyclists, that one stark black and white image dealt a fatal blow to their cherished self-image. And it's true, whether deserving or not, that single photo sent waves through the collective conscious of our culture, cementing bikers as this wild, lawless outsider. Now, it's interesting because certainly most, many for sure, kind of play up that image today, trading in you know their white collars during the work week for leather vests and Harleys on the weekend. And you don't have to look much further than Hollywood to see further evidence. With shows like Sons of Anarchy and classic movies like The Wild One play right into that stereotype. But Chris, I, for one, 
would much rather think of the guys liberating Europe on the back of Harleys or even that intrepid son of a French blacksmith riding his steaming bone shaker. Me too. That was that was a great story, man. I really, I really, really, really like that one. And thank you. You know, I it's it's weird how biking became this huge rebellious thing. Exactly. But then all of a sudden now, when you see some a Hell's Angels guy, I've I've seen him riding up by me. I just, it doesn't really strike much fear into me. No. It's, Versus it's, if, it, if you saw a Hell's Angels guy in, in 1979 or 1981, you t- you just stop the car. Right. <laughs> you just yeah, you, you, you turn yeah, around. No kidding. And it was legit real deal. But even if you're not you know, scared efforts. of this, it, you still have that stigma. Well, yeah. The but stigma survives. Now, and I don't want to beg on Harley riders or anything, but now riding Harley is a guy leaves his office exactly in, that's my in point. downtown minneapolis because they're go, playing off that stereotype. yeah yeah they go they open their garage door with their automatic garage no- door opener <laughs> from their lexus gs 450 <laughs> and then they hop on oh, their spo- so they hop on, on their eighteen thousand dollar harley yep. and with the with the muffler that's taken off of it so oh, it yeah. sounds loud so you can hear them and then they put on their little chaps and their little <laughs> vest that says i'm a badass mother effer and it probably says "badass mf" on right, the, on the back. Yeah, no. 100%. And they go around and they just like just drive around, and they're a completely different person. So, yeah. but here's the thing: who cares? I don't like Harleys. Okay, I'm not a Harley guy. You have but to if admit it, if it if it gives that guy a sense of freedom from his cubicle bound bullshit job, <laughs> and he's out there on his Harley with the wind in his hair and joy, kudos for him. And if people are getting that feeling from that, it's almost worth almost. Worth me hearing that dickhead that drives by my house every weekend Chris. with the thing go up. I just loud pipes save lives, Chris. That's somewhat true. Well, I guess if you're on a bike, maybe it's not so bad that it's no, loud. It's so some guy I, in the Escalade can actually I hear you. Get it. So I wanted to say you got a bike, sort of. <laughs> why did you ask me the other day if I had? Um, we don't have too much time left, but why did why did you ask me if I had a, a motorcycle license? Oh, because my wife and I wanted to go for like a cruise and didn't know if you wanted to also do that. So I get me a rocket. I, I, Chris, I bought a Ducati last week. You bought, wait, no, wait. Uh, Yes. Yeah. You bought a Ducati (laughs) last week. That's right. Yes. You bought it. My wife made sure to tell me in no uncertain terms that she bought herself a Ducati. That's right. She's a pretty badass chick, I think. Uh, She's been showing up to the the Overcrest meets on a Grom. Yeah, she has. So she last year bought a brand new Grom. And she's just like tired of that thing or what? No, she loves it so much. She's like, but I need... I she need wants a bigger, to graduate faster. Exactly. Yeah, so I'm going to go from a Grom to a Ducati Monster. I right. mean, that seems like. Yes, it was great. <laughs> so can I, do we have five minutes to tell you this story? Yeah. So the weekend before last, we're going up to my buddy's place up north, up near Monticello. And on the way is a dealer that sells Ducatis. And so we go, oh, well, let's stop in there. And all we're going to do, we're just going to sit on a couple bikes, see what you think of them. Yep. And three hours later, she's test riding almost every bike they have. Okay. Okay. And they go, yeah, you can take them out. You can test them. We have we have helmets for you. The only thing our insurance provider requires is wearing pants. And she comes back from riding the monster. She goes, you need to ride this. I want you to ride this. Did you have pants on? I did not. <laughs> did you buy pants? So first, I was up <laughs> to my buddy's pants? place, and I go, hey, hey, Sam, how far do you live from this place? He's like, oh, that's twenty five minutes. It's like it's not worth you bringing me pants. So then I asked the, the guy, I was like, do you sell pants here? He's like, oh, yeah, we got all sorts of riding pants. Go back there. They all start at $300 because yeah. they're, you know, like armored riding pants. Right. 
What, and what, so did I they looked at any, Nikki. Did they have any assless chaps for you they to wear? They did not. <laughs> and Nikki was wearing her Victoria's Secret leggings. Oh. And so I put on her Victoria's Secret leggings. That is not even pants. There's nothing. No, I mean, it's not. But it counted for insurance purposes. And oh. here I am riding these massive bikes in Victoria's Secret leggings. Moose knuckle and all. Oh, hell yeah, man. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I actually, we, we put end up putting down money on two different bikes. We're like, we can't decide. They're closing for the weekend. We're, we're, I told her we need to They're used, right? They're both used. No, these are both brand spanking new. Okay. And over the weekend, we found one just popped up on Craigslist for significantly cheaper. Great deal. I talked to our local uh, Ducati club guy who knows these bikes, yep. and he kind of gave the go-ahead. We went and looked at it and ended up buying it and bringing it home. Is and that I what's... need to now check and see if I got my deposit back from the dealer. <laughs> oh, did you? Jesus. Imagine not even caring. Jeez. <laughs> Come I on, man. remembered that. <laughs> but anyways, yeah, it's, uh, it's Ducati Monster 796. So that's 800cc. Desmo Drive. There's no valve springs. You got two different cam followers that open and close it. So From what I can tell. Zero the, valve float. There is, they're an absolute nightmare to maintain. Yeah, they are. Yeah. Yes. You, it's, it's like, but I'm it not is a, aptly named. That thing is a monster. Well, you like to maintain your own stuff. Right. With this thing, are you going to do uh, the it? The Desmo you... service, which is due every, it's either five or 7,500 miles, I will take in. Yeah, it's not worth it. It's so complicated. You got to do belts. Train. You got to do, all, yeah, it's, that's, they're Italian and well, they're finicky. Congratulations that your wife bought a motorcycle. <laughs> is, is that, I don't know if that's Hey, what, thanks. Are you going to get something too? <laughs> yeah, I've been looking at bikes. So, you know what you should do is you should just ride a Grom. I have been. You've been riding the Grom <laughs> yes. where she rides the Ducati? Yes, it's hilarious. Uh, in Birkenstocks? Uh, no, I do wear proper footwear. You wear, oh, yes, at least there's that. All right, guys, we'll see you on Monday. And next week's episode, full episode, is going to be uh, Bob Gerritsen from Gerritsen Enterprises, who, if you just, awesome Google, just Google it. Race driver. If you, are, if you know of the Apple car, the Apple 935. Yes, iconic some, car. There's some great stories from Bob, so I can't wait to share those with you guys. We will see you on Monday. Awesome. Take care. Mm-hmm.